Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Clinical Signs Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. I'm here uh, for the sixth episode of this podcast. And today, for this podcast, I wanted to speak about something completely different than what I've um, touched on so far. And it has been a news item um, over the summer. Uh, I'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. But what I'd like to talk about is a virus called the canine parvovirus, or CPV. Uh, Over the summer, there was a little bit of news. It seemed to be played up as a mystery in Michigan. There were dogs that broke with a parvo-like illness that subsequently was, ta-da, discovered to be parvovirus. So no shock to any veterinarian that has been around for a while and also knows uh, shelters. And there could be a lot of causes of what happened up there in Michigan. Now, what my plan is with parvo, as a vet, we generally just call it parvo. There actually are many different parvoviruses. There's many different viruses in veterinary medicine. But when you're talking about dogs and cats, we usually just say, okay, parvovirus. So if I say parvovirus, I'm also talking about canine parvovirus. There's nothing with cats today. This is solely going to be a dog focus. How I thought I would break this up is I thought what I would do is it would be broken into two sections. And my goal here is not to bore anybody because when you talk about viruses, they can be quite boring when you go into excruciating detail on them. I will put up multiple links for anybody that wants to really go through and read quite a bit about them. I'm not going to go into that level of detail because I don't think it's necessary, number one. And number two, it is really dull. What I'm going to do is in the first part here is just talk about an overview of the virus and I think things that would be very important for a homeowner or a pet owner to consider they're going to have a young uh, puppy, basically, or basically a dog under one year of age, or they're going to adopt a young animal with an unknown vaccine history. And then I'm going to talk about disease specifics, which tends to be a little bit more numbery. That's where we're really going to talk about a lot of clinical signs. We're going to talk about a little bit of treatment, a little bit of uh, how animals recover and things like that, a little bit more specific about the disease. So to get started, there was back when the um, first time that parvo was discovered in dogs, it was in the mid to late 70s. And there was an epidemic, which I believe started in Europe, of dogs dying. What they ultimately discovered was it was a parvovirus that we're calling it today, but that it had originated from a cat virus called feline panleukopenia virus. Parvovirus in dogs has a 98% similarity um, in its genes to feline panleukopenia virus. So here we have, in some fashion, a virus that mutated hosts that uh, cats are the host for feline panleukopenia virus and dogs are the host for canine parvovirus. So you have a virus that jumped species. I don't, I have not read exactly how that happened, but viruses are their own entity and can do very strange things as we've seen again and and to use covid as an analogy covid we're on the umpteenth number of different strains and substrains of covid and that's only in as far as we know a couple of years so viruses can change very rapidly the 
the history, a little bit more of the history is, or the background of parvo is, it is now an endemic disease worldwide. It's ubiquitous, meaning it's worldwide. This virus is everywhere in dogs all over the world. And if you do a literature search, you will see reports from Italy, Asia, other places where there's parvovirus. So at this point, most dogs will be exposed in their lifetime. Now, some will, it will happen as a puppy, some it will happen as an older animal. Basically, parvo is a disease of the young, young animal and um, unvaccinated or partially vaccinated dog. Now, species, I already mentioned that it's worldwide. This is a dog-specific disease, but it is also found in other dog uh, or canine-type animals such as coyotes, wolves, raccoons, skunks, and fox. So right there, that is one way that this disease will remain endemic. You can vaccinate every dog in the world. You cannot vaccinate every coyote, wolf, raccoon, skunk, and fox. So the disease will be transmitted and passed on from generation to generation in those species. And, of course, they live out in the wild, and they're going to spread the virus wherever they travel. Now, there's there's talk in the veterinary profession about breeds that are supposed to be more susceptible to the virus and maybe more, not just susceptible, but maybe more likely to die from the virus. And let me list off a couple of breeds. This is not a complete list, but Breeds such as Rottweilers, German Shepherd Dogs, and Doberman Pinchers. The only reference I could find was a paper put up by the University of Pennsylvania in the mid-80s that listed some of the breeds of dogs that had been hospitalized at that point. And remember that uh, at that time, Parvo was less than 10 years old, meaning it had been around for less than 10 years, and vaccines... Uh, one of the ways that that epidemic was broken, the back of that was broken, was through pharmaceutical companies with the animal divisions developing vaccines. That's the only paper, and that's 40 years ago. So I don't know that it's really true. I think it's easy for people to be very subjective and say, oh, yes, I tend to see X, Y, and Z. That can be due to a lot of things. I see this species more than others. It could be what's what species is very predominant in the area. It could be how, uh, if we're talking about breeders, how the breeders are caring for uh, uh, the parents and the puppies and when our vaccine started and what vaccine is being used and what is the sanitation where those animals live and how many wild animals do they have access to uh, if they take the dogs outside, where, what wild animals might they come in contact with or maybe not even come in contact with? Because viruses you cannot see, as we, again, have uh, recently learned with COVID. You can't see a virus. So there can be particles of the virus in the environment, which I'll get into a little bit more in detail. But animal can be exposed in that fashion. So uh, going 40 years without a paper defining, delineating what species are susceptible, I really question that. But it sounds good. It makes people feel like, ooh, you know, a little voodoo, a little a little mystery. I guess in people's minds, never hurt. So how, I, I just touched on this. How is this disease spread? How is it transmitted? And it's a unfortunate one in the term, in the, in the um, manner in which it is um 
transmitted from one animal to another, basically. It's called fecal-oral. Isn't that terrible? Fecal meaning feces, stool poop, and oral means into the mouth. And, of course, dogs are quite oral animals and will pick up, lick, taste, a lot of different things. So it's not... You can see how simple it would be for a dog to be exposed. So what will happen is, talking about the fecal-oral route of transmission... The dog will come in direct contact with some feces or maybe another dog. And everybody knows dogs, when they will greet each other, a lot of times they're going to their hind end. And what are they doing? They're sniffing and they're getting very close. So there's a high, uh, there's a simple route of transmission right there that they're directly behind the dog's rear end. They're touching the dog's rear end probably. And I'm sure some of them are licking. So very simple for this disease to be transmitted directly from one dog to another. Now, there's another means of transmitting this virus, and that's what's called an indirect mean, that it's not coming directly from a dog or from another animal or feces, basically, from another animal, is uh, what's called a fomite. A fomite, again, all these words, we probably heard some of it at the beginning of COVID, but a fomite is basically an inanimate object. It could be a comb. It could be a brush. It could be a rake. Um, a fomite can be anything that comes in contact with contaminated feces and that maybe it's inapparent to the person that is using the fomite. But then if you use, let's just take the, uh, let's just take a glove. You have a dog, unfortunately, as parvo, maybe you know it, maybe you don't. Glove becomes contaminated. And again, it doesn't take a lot of particles. I don't know how many particles, but it probably does not take very many particles of the parvo virus itself to infect a dog but it's on that glove and if you use that glove from one dog to another very simple to pass that on to the next animal and maybe that animal is unprotected and if it's unprotected it might actually get parvo now if you're talking adult animals they should have mounted a good immune response they should have antibodies so if they come across parvo as an adult they should be able to fight that off no big deal now let's talk about how long does a virus last in the environment and this is what, again, is also contributing to it being an endemic virus. Indoors, the virus has been known to survive for at least two months, if not longer, months. So that is a scenario or a recipe for potential problems if somebody brings a young puppy into our house. Again, I said puppies are uh, much more likely to be infected or can be infected and can get ill from parvo. And if, if they become ill with parvo, now they're going to uh, be shedding parvo virus inside the house. I'll talk about how things should be cleaned in a moment, but you're going to contaminate that indoor environment. And then if that animal does not survive parvo and you bring in a new puppy in a month, you're going to expose that new puppy to parvo. So that's one of the big problems with this virus is that this virus is very hardy. It's hard to kill. Outdoors, again, a huge contributing factor to um, why this virus is endemic today in the world is that it can last for years outside. Now, it depends. If there's direct sunlight exposure, maybe that's going to kill the virus. But we have usually very moist environments in the environment, in the dirt, in the soil, in the clay or sand or what have you. And it's easy for virus viral particles to 
attached to those surfaces and then just stay there and then wait for a they'll be picked up by a uh, susceptible animal. Now, the best means to get rid of things are, number one, <clears throat> if you can discard a contaminated item, that is the simplest, easiest way to um, decrease any other animal's exposure or, uh, you know, clean the environment, so to speak. So discarding a contaminated item would be number one. The second thing that can be done is to disinfect surfaces, and that can be done very simply with a dilute uh, bleach and water solution, and it would be one part of bleach to 30 parts of water, so that's relatively dilute, and that would be that 4 or 5% bleach that you can buy over the counter. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to to delete or to delete, to disinfect uh, dirt. You can't really disinfect dirt, and that's why I'm not a real big fan of uh, puppies going to places where other dogs, or as we learned a couple minutes ago, places where, for example, skunks, raccoons, and fox might be transiting, you're going to expose that puppy for sure to parvo. So I'm not a big fan of taking uh, puppies that are, uh, number one, incompletely vaccinated, or they haven't finished their vaccines, or you don't know their vaccine history. I think you're kind of playing with fire in that regard. So how are animals getting exposed? I already talked about uh, animals that are susceptible, it's mostly puppies that are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. It's animals that are are in environments that are already contaminated or there had been an animal that had previously had parvo in the residence, let's say. So it's not that difficult for a, a young dog to be exposed. Ideally, if you do have a sick dog, it's best to isolate that dog to a, to a small area that's easy to clean, some sort of kennel. Uh, would be better than letting the dog, for example, roam around in a in a property or a house. It's going to spread that parvo uh, quite easily and spread it everywhere. And one practice that I did work at the scenario that I told you where a a puppy had been, I don't remember if it had been purchased from a pet shop or a breeder or it had been picked up at a rescue. The dog came home. Dog broke with parvo. Uh, the hospital I was at, we treated. Unfortunately, the puppy did not survive that. And not too long after, I think it was only a couple of weeks, they brought another puppy in, and then that puppy got parvo. It doesn't mean 100% that the dog got parvo from the house, but highly possible, highly possible. There is a preventative I had mentioned before back in the 70s. The Animal health companies had developed a vaccine, so there is, there is, there are multiple different vaccines by different companies available. Puppies have a, a schedule that they do need to be vaccinated on, but that is not based on the age of the puppy and uh, the antibodies from the mom that the puppy might have and the uh, population that the puppy is around all sorts of different things is going to potentially expose that puppy. So even if the puppy has one vaccine, it's not enough. It has to go through a series of vaccines. And I had mentioned limiting exposure of puppies to other dogs in other environments. And even uh, I would counsel owners to be very careful about taking dogs out, let's say on the street, if you're in urban, suburban area, uh, I mentioned that Parvo was everywhere. You take that puppy out, bring it out on the street, other dogs are going to 
uh, transit the area, fox for sure, skunks and, and other animals. Hopefully not a wolf running down a suburban neighborhood, but you never know. Coyotes for sure. So they are going to be spreading that virus around and then a puppy can come in contact. So a puppy that's only partially vaccinated has not completely mounted a, a good immune response is going to be susceptible. And that's often what you hear. The puppy got maybe one, maybe two vaccines, or maybe the uh, owners never finished the uh, series of vaccines. And and a puppy gets sick with parvo. Sometimes they die, sometimes they don't. But it just because an animal gets a vaccine does not mean that it is protected. It takes it takes a while, a couple of weeks to two weeks for the animal to mount a really good immune response. But we also need a series of vaccines in that in that process from the puppy from generally about eight to ten weeks of age up until about sixteen to eighteen weeks of age. Generally, at least three vaccines in that in that window. Sometimes, depending on um, if there's a history, maybe giving the animal a fourth vaccine a little later on at four, well, I already said four months of age, maybe about five months to six months of age to ensure that it has a good uh, immune response. So that's a little bit of the background and the history of parvovirus. Now I'm going to get into some disease specifics. This is where things become a little bit dry, and I'm going to throw out a little bit of numbers, but <clears throat> Again, I try to keep it to the minimum because I don't want to to fill you fill your head with lots of numbers that are that you think are super important to try to remember. So once an animal is exposed, there's a term we use called incubation. And what is incubation? Exactly what it sounds like. Incubation is the time from when the animal is exposed to when it becomes infected. Now, if we're just going to I basically take the average animal that if it is exposed as a puppy probably will be infected, uh, and then to express clinical signs. can be a week, but generally it's going to be less. It's only going to be a few days. So it's relatively quick. And then the other part of this, again, going back to why the disease is endemic, is uh, shedding of the virus. Shedding of the virus starts pretty quickly. It starts four days after an infection and lasts for 10 days after recovery. So basically that puppy, that dog is a virus factory, and it's going to be shedding virus in its feces, even if the stool is normal, the feces is normal, that feces is going to have parvo in it, parvo particles in it. So again, I said that it's easy for that to remain in the environment, whether it's in your house or in a fenced-in yard or uh, outdoors. So best to isolate those animals and uh, remove the feces. Clinical signs. There is a very wide range of clinical signs when it comes to parvo. It's going to depend on how how heavily infected the animal is and how the animal's immune system is responding to the virus. So the way viruses work is viruses are not actually living organisms like bacteria. Viruses are are pieces of genetic material that need to get into a cell to what, what term we use, replicate, to encode that cell to make more copies of the virus. So that's what happens. Viruses get into a cell. That cell is then triggered, turned on to produce more and more virus. And then that's how the virus spreads throughout the body. So we can have very mild and what's called self-limiting clinical signs. And an example of that is maybe the dog only has some soft stool, which, you know, can happen 
not normally in a puppy, but it, it can happen in a puppy because puppies are exposed to many different things, many different types of foods, could be treats, could be parasites, could be things like parvo. And the dog is walking around, bouncing around, uh, healthy and happy, and you would know you would only know it if you if you tested the animal, which I've seen. I've seen a dog walking around, happy as a clam, bouncing around. Typical puppy. It had soft stool, and I don't remember why. It was probably the history of the puppy, but I tested it for parvo, and it came up positive. So that was is simple. That animal did not require a tremendous amount of treatment, and we can run the gamut. So we have very mild to we can have very severe clinical signs and some of those clinical signs would be lethargy meaning the dog is very laying is very lazy it's laying around it doesn't have the energy to get up and play it can be collapsed it can be laying on its side and not even have the ability to get up there can be intense nausea and the way you would see that is uh, possibly a lot of drooling there can be vomiting and diarrhea uh, shock shock can happen uh, and shock in a puppy would would basically look like the dog is collapsed. The gums, instead of being pink, would be pale, and the gums might be cold. So any of these severe clinical signs that I just talked about is definitely an emergency. As the virus is replicating very rapidly and and getting into the important, very important parts of the body. And what, what parts are those? Well, I had mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago that the uh, a virus, every virus, has to find its its the cell that it prefers, and that we call the viral tropism. And for parvo in dogs, it's the lymph tissue, it's the lymphocytes, which are a particular type of white blood cell that the parvo likes to get into. So you can suppress the animal's immune system. It also gets into the epithelial cells in the lining of the GI tract. And when it does that, it's killing those cells. And then that allows for bacteria in the gut to get into the bloodstream and maybe cause septicemia, which is going to lead to the state of shock. And uh, parvo can get into the bone marrow, which the bone marrow is the precursor cells for uh, red blood cells and our white blood cells. Not every white blood cell, but some white blood cells. So again, the virus can get in to the bone marrow and suppress the immune system, and then therefore the animal's going to have a very difficult time mounting an immune response to fight off the virus. And unfortunately for uh, very young animals, parvo can get into the heart and severely damage the heart. So parvo can do a number on a puppy, and once it's it's in there, it can overwhelm the animal's ability to fight it off. Now, parvo is mostly speaking a relatively straightforward disease to diagnose. We're going to use such things as, as I've mentioned before, clinical signs such as vomiting and diarrhea, the age of the animal. Okay, for most veterinarians, it's going to be a relatively straightforward diagnosis. There is a antigen test in that's readily um, available in veterinary offices. It's a snap test, so they only need a little bit of feces to run that test, or a sample of feces can be sent out uh, for PCR to a lab, which PCR basically, what that stands for is polymerase chain reaction, which is a fancy term for 
taking a small piece of virus and multiplying it many times inside the lab so that they can uh, properly isolate it and identify the virus specifically. Treatment, there, there is treatment. There are treatments. There is no specific treatment. So if we take that mildly affected patient, that mildly affected patient will probably be treated as an outpatient, meaning that you take the dog home, do things like isolate it, maybe give it some medications um, to uh, firm up the stool and limit secondary, uh, potential secondary infections in the gut from spreading into the uh, bloodstream and it will not be as expensive as if the puppy is severely affected and that would require hospitalization for receiving more intensive treatment for such things as IV fluids, antibiotics. Now, depending on how the bone marrow is, might need some transfusions. So you can see that the cost would ratchet up very quickly and it's going to take more uh, staff to to care for that animal, and it's going to take more time of the staff. And there's such things as anti-nausea medications, antibiotics, many other things to or medications um, and nursing care to support that puppy. And one of the other things is if we can get the puppy eating quicker, that's going to be better. As long as the puppy is not vomiting, we're going to feed that puppy because number one, it's going to help that gut heal quicker. Number two, it's going to provide nutrients, more water and electrolytes that the puppy needs. Again, water and electrolytes will be provided um, via any IV fluids. Uh, it's also going to make the puppy feel better. Again, as long as there's, uh, as long as the puppy's not vomiting. And that, and, and severe clinical signs and hospitalization is, is going to cost quite a bit of money. The good news is that recovery up to 90% of dogs, puppies are going to recover. So I think that's a fairly good uh, cause for hope. It doesn't mean that every puppy is going to survive, but most puppies are going to survive. Sometimes there's times that we can tell that a puppy is doing well, but sometimes they, when they're hospitalized, they rally for a day or two. Things are looking better and then they crash. And they're crashing because that virus is just continuing to be replicated inside the body and then it just overwhelms the body. So um, that's one of the more difficult aspects of parvo is that it can give you a false sense of that the animal's actually covering and then it crashes and doesn't make it. So finally, when we're talking about canine parvovirus. So when a puppy recovers from an infection, or it's vaccinated and it goes through all the usually three, sometimes four uh, vaccines in a series as a puppy, the, the immunity is going to be lifelong. And that's a, that's a really good thing because that shows you how, how potent, number one, the immune system is in one, responding to the virus, and two, responding to the vaccine. So that's really good for dogs. And that's goes again back to the fact that this is basically a puppy disease or disease of the uh, incompletely vaccinated or unvaccinated. I've never heard of, doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but in my readings, in my experience, I have not come across an adult dog that's gotten parvo or that's had parvo. If there's any questions about an adult dog or an older puppy maybe six months of age or older, that you're not sure if the puppy's been vaccinated or exposed, you can measure the antibodies in the, from the blood. And that can be sent out to a lab, and then the lab will return results. It's a number, and that number will 
demonstrate the strength of the the level of the antibodies, and from that you can correlate if the animal is protected or not. And for me right now, this covers uh, parvovirus. I hope to use this format in the future. <clears throat> if you enjoyed this format of how I presented this disease, of giving you some background, some history, some some pertinent information about the virus and how it's transmitted and how to take care of the environment and into some disease specifics. This is how I'd like to proceed in the future. If you didn't enjoy it, let me know. If you enjoyed it, let me know. I always love the feedback. And that's, uh, so that concludes the Clinical Science Podcast on canine parvovirus. I look forward to speaking to you again. You can email me at askdrmatt at proton.me. I'll put a link down in the uh, show notes. I'll put multiple links in the show notes for veterinary sources, for qualified veterinary sources if you wanted to read further about uh, clinical science treatment and things like that. Be well, and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.